Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Hey, DJ, how are you? Good, yourself? Doing pretty well. Kind of enjoying the weather in Berkeley right now. <laughs> Seriously, uh, Thursdays are my best day. I get a, I go to some, I go to the Rose Garden uh, over in uh, Berkeley. But if you make me a moderator, you're new. So let me, uh, if you click on oh, my yeah. profile, yep. you, can, you can say moderator. Moder- I gotcha. Is this room? Yeah, okay, the people will show up. Okay, cool. Well, uh, great to have you here. Um, really excited to, uh, you know, just like have a conversation with you and just tell your story more broadly. And and I think ECL has some really incredible infrastructure. So hopefully, uh, you know, inspire some scientists and entrepreneurs to uh, reach out and plug into ECL. But uh, everyone, we're really, you know, I'm really excited to have a DJ Kleinbaum, the co-founder, and is it CEO or co-CEO still? I think it's, Co-CEO. Uh, Co-CEO. co-CEO. Yes. Very important. You you and Brian are co-CEOs of ECL, Emerald yes. Cloud Lab. Uh, and it's it's uh I'll let I'll let DJ talk about it. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe we can you can introduce yourself and we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm as uh, as Josh already said, I'm DJ Kleinbaum. I'm one of the co-founders of Emerald Cloud Lab. And what Emerald is is a remote control life sciences laboratory. So we've effectively built a software application that scientists anywhere in the world can use to design experiments as if they're standing in front of the instruments themselves. Once those experiments are designed and submitted to our system, they get run in an ECL facility facility exactly according to the specifications that we've been given. And then the data is handed back to the scientists through the same software application which also includes a whole suite of tools for 
analysis, visualization, plotting, basically figuring out what happened in your experiment and deciding what you want to do next. This has been a relatively long and circuitous journey for us. And Josh, I don't know how much you want to get into that, but we've been at this for more than 11 years now. Yeah, I think good things take time. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, Emerald has an incredible story. And anybody in the audience, if you have questions, this is more of a conversation. So I see some familiar faces. So uh, always happy to uh, have questions and a different perspective. Uh, but maybe we can start from day one. Um, you know, how did you and Brian, Preza, the other co-founder, meet? And from my understanding, you, you're both from Philadelphia. Yeah, so, uh, so our I'm a horrible person to talk to about how to how to like meet or find a co-founder because the only experience i have with it is when you're nine years old have your family move to a house that's two doors away from someone who's going to grow up to be one of the most brilliant scientists of a generation so that's how i did it um, i'm not sure that's particularly actionable for others but brian and i have known each other since we were seven so since probably the first day of first grade and then uh, a couple years later, my family moved to a house on Emerald Drive, which is uh, where the name of the company comes from. And you know, you know, from third grade on, we were inseparable. That's awesome. And so, uh, Brian went to Scripps for chemistry, and you went to Stanford. You both went to Carnegie Mellon together, which, right? Uh, really At the fun. time, yeah, probably from the time we were fourteen or fifteen, we were really interested in this intersection of computer science and the life sciences, which sounds obvious now, but I promise at the time, you know, made us very weird. I had someone who actually, when I told them that was what I wanted to go study in college, they, you know, asked me like, why don't you study physics and French literature? They have as much to do with one another as computer science and biology. So the last, whatever, 21 years, I think has proven us right. But at the time, Carnegie Mellon was one of only a few schools in the country that even had a program that allowed you to reasonably like study both of those things. Yep. Also, one, one side note, you, you two both went to different high schools, though. Was that to kind of not compete? <laughs> you know, so both of you could be valedictorian or was it just kind of happenstance? <laughs> no, it was uh, it was just happenstance. In fact, I used to joke. So we went to the same elementary and middle schools different high schools, the same college, different graduate schools, and then started a company together. So I used to worry that I was only tolerable for like four years at a time. <laughs> Thankfully, that seems to not be the case because I, yeah, we're on year 11 now and, you know, some iteration of the Emeralds. So it's, uh, yeah, so thankfully that wasn't the case, but, you know, we, we ended up going to, uh, yeah, we did go to different high schools. Yeah, and that's, that's always really interesting. Sometimes I have friends I, who, you know, they're very, you know, high, high, they're trying to be number one at their high school. So they, they have another friend of theirs. They don't want to compete. So they train, they, they, seriously, I, I grew up in Orange County and there's a high school called Troy High School. And it's like, I, I didn't go to Troy High School because I wanted to be valedictorian. So I went to some other high school. Because Troy, Troy, Troy High School had too many smart kids. I was like, let me go to a school of not so smart kids. Uh, and so, okay, uh, Brian's at Scripps, uh, you're at Stanford. Yep. What was the premise you know, of, you know, Emerald Cloud Labs was Emerald Therapeutics. And so right. maybe you could tell that story of being in grad school and one, wanting to start a company and then two, realizing, holy smokes, we might have to build infrastructure for ourselves and other people. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, I think we knew we wanted to start a company way back, like before we even, I think we both went to Carnegie Mellon knowing we wanted to come out of this and start a company. You know, uh, Brian's... Brian's dad was a serial entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. 
and his brother was um, was very uh, very important to like the early days of PayPal and worked very closely with Max Levchin. So we had not only did we have the startup bug like from you know hearing those stories and those experiences from the time we were young, but I also always kind of suspected that I was way too insubordinate to do anything but like start my own company or start my own business or anything because I just would not work in a sort of like larger infrastructure. And so, you know, we got to the end of our time in undergrad and had ideas for like a company that we would, you know, many ideas for, you know, a company we would start in retrospect, all of which were bad. But, you know, we started talking to other entrepreneurs and investors and everyone told us no one will fund or let you run a biotech company unless you have three letters after your name. So you hear that, you know, several dozen times and eventually like, all right, screw it. We'll go to graduate school. So I don't have a lot of particularly positive things to say about my graduate school experience, except that it gave us the better part of five years to vet dozens of different ideas about what this company was going to do and not just about what we were going to do, but how we were going to do it. Because I think we both got to these, you know, top research institutions and given our, you know, engineering and computer science background, we're just appalled at like the state of research. And we would have these, calls where you know he'd call me or i'd call him like i don't think the emperor's wearing any clothes and it was very validating to have someone on the other end of the line who'd be like you know what you're right it is ridiculous that we're using this scientific instrumentation that you know costs hundreds of thousands of dollars and generates this incredibly precise data and the way that we save that is to print it out and glue stick it into a paper lab notebook like that's crazy and so by the time we finished graduate school and started Emerald Therapeutics, we had just as many ideas about how the company would accomplish its goals as what those goals were. And that ended up being very valuable because, you know, the summer of 2010 was not a great time to be raising money in biotech, especially if you were a couple of nobodies right out of graduate school, which we very much were. I still consider it to be a minor miracle we were able to raise any money, but this was, you know, this was not a like gigantic series a this was not a flagship series a by any means and so you know we had we didn't have like the funds to run this like a traditional 20th century biotech startup and that was good because we had no intention to so we had we you know started building tools for ourselves just to give our small team the leverage that we needed to get all the necessary work done for this therapeutics effort and then that just grew over time to this much larger and more holistic system. That's really awesome. Yeah, I totally feel you on grad school. I mean, I love, sci <laughs> I, I love science, but doing biology is so hard. And I have so, you know, honestly, when I, when I read science papers, I, I feel like Salieri or something. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how did they do this? And that's why grad, yeah. honestly, grad school didn't work out for me because like, bench work is way too hard. That's why, you know, Emerald and Transcriptic uh, back in the day, you know, are so attractive because like if you can kind of decouple creativity from the actual like hand, hand like labor, uh, you might have more different people uh, designing experiments. Uh, right. So I honestly, they're, they're... I, I, I might go back to grad school in 10 years. <laughs> Seriously, I, need a P I actually need a PhD. So <laughs> help me get a PhD, JJ. Listen, if we can make you know, if we can like empower people to, you know, uh, one of the great tragedies, I think, of the sort of like 
graduate school, like academic complexes, people leave graduate school or leave a postdoc thinking the value they bring to the world is what they do with their hands, not what they do with their head. Yeah. And that makes sense when you think about how your time is distributed as a, you know, as a bench scientist that, you know, you spend a week planning out a set of experiments that you know is going to take you six months to, you know, get to the end of. And anything we can do to sort of shrink the time from idea to result is, you know, doesn't just like make graduate school more palatable. It makes, it's better for all of us because it makes science go faster. It allows us to explore more and like more ambitious ideas because the, the labor involved is just, it's less onerous. I mean, I had this very, I think, transformative experience when I was an undergrad. I took a graduate a graduate class in bioorganic chemistry. And one of the last things we had to do was like everyone had to put together a research proposal. And all the undergrads who, you know, had, you know, we all had like done research in the lab, but we weren't like grizzled veterans. You know, the, the all our like ideas for these research research proposals were things that were incredibly ambitious and would easily be like, if you made it work, it'd be the fastest, like uh, from like the paper to like a Nobel prize that you had like seen. And then all the graduate students had proposals that were like, I'm going to take this thing that I understand really well, and I'm going to take a tiny step forward. And I think the difference between those two is that the undergrads did not, we did not fully comprehend the amount of like labor required to like do these very ambitious projects. And the graduate students felt that very viscerally. So how could you do anything but try to move things forward incrementally? I, I totally agree. I think um, uh, we'll get there. And I, I think ECL's <laughs> in the lead there. So maybe we can kind of move towards kind of the platform you have and and so you, and, and, and keep it on the timeline. So you have a therapeutics company. Oh, yeah. and, and so one thing, about, I, I love hype. I love like bragging about things. I love hyping people up. It's, it's my job. <laughs> and so ECL, it's incredible what you guys built. You guys have like hundreds of devices uh, and, and, and you have like thousands of different functions, uh, you know, being fully integrated from you know, taking that data from an instrument, doing analysis and then delivering, you know, uh, some sort of insight towards it. And so, and in, and in, and in, in a combination of being fully integrated, you know your labs can just they're they're on every they're on every day uh 24/7 and yeah. it's it's just, that's another you know you know I I live in Berkeley and sometimes I walk by the labs and I feel, I feel a little depressed I'm like man they're, they're it's like midnight right now and I I'm seeing somebody like doing a PCR <laughs> Whoa, that stinks man I've been there that's not a fun life so if you can kind of uh, ECL is not only helping science but it's also reducing suffering and so uh, you know what was the kind of like from day 1 or what was, what was that moment where you decided, do Emerald Therapeutics, we're gonna go build a lab too? When was that kind of switch? Um, yeah, it was. So it was very organic. So you know, at as I mentioned, like at Emerald Therapeutics, we the two we did two things that were very different from the start. One was we invested a lot of the small amount of money we raised into capital equipment because our goal from the beginning was every experiment should be push a button walk away we couldn't afford to hire a technician and like camp one in front of each instrument that we had to keep running and so we needed a way that our scientists would be able to just run many things at once they would be able to be more leveraged than like your average bench scientist so we invested in automation 
and not just for like like high throughput stuff, but just for everything. Some of it's really like simple, just like buying auto samplers and fraction collectors for LC systems so that you don't have to wait for your fraction to come out, which I spent countless hours doing as a graduate student. And so that was, so the hardware piece was like one. And the other piece was we taught all of our scientists how to write software and not like low level stuff. We weren't teaching people how to do cache validation and memory management or anything like that. Just enough so that they could build tools to make themselves more efficient. So you could build a function for like doing, you know, uh, doing, uh, doing plot analysis. So you didn't have to like spend time, like picking your peaks every time you had like run an LC. And that started as like very simple, just like build yourself tools so you can be more efficient. And over the course of three or four years, that slowly grew to encompass everything that happened in the lab. And the last step of which was the one that sort of just started thinking about the protocols that were run in the lab as just another node in this sort of data graph that we were, data graph or knowledge graph that we were building so that our scientists could sit at their computers and you know, specify you know, an experiment they wanted to run the software would generate a machine readable file that could get loaded onto the instrument. And then the only thing you had to do in the lab was the logistics. Like, okay, I've got to move like this carboy of buffer to this instrument. I've got to put this plasticware on the deck or move a sample from point A to point B. And that was the only time you had to be in the lab was just sort of like shuttling things around. And at that point, just the productivity of our scientists just skyrocketed. And I actually realized this because I was, uh, like going through like our budget and our like our burn for a board report. And I was like, how are we like, how did we spend so much money in reagents over the last like month and a half? Like it was actually kind of like a terrifying moment. But then I realized it was because our scientists were running so many more experiments once these, you know, once that protocol feature had gone live. And so at some point, you know, like around that time, we went to our board and we kind of said, look, we built this internal tool. There's more value in this thing than we can capture just by using it ourselves. This kind of needs to be its own thing. You know, we built this cloud lab internally. I think, you know, uh, Brian, my co-founder and Stephen Wolfram started using the term cloud lab. I want to say like years before this, this was like circa like 2011, they started talking about what we were doing as a cloud lab. It was just a cloud lab that was internal to Emerald Therapeutics. And so, you know, after many conversations with our board and way too many conversations with lawyers, we eventually decided that these two things needed to be on their own trajectory. So we actually spun the companies off from one another. So Emerald Cloud Lab and Emerald Therapeutics exist as two completely independent corporate entities. Yeah, but that's really interesting. As, as a founder, like how did that, that pro it's kind of like uh that process go where, you know, Emerald Therapeutics, you're, you're trying to solve one problem, make medicines for patients. And then it's then, oh, we, we're, we have to solve our own problem. And you see that a lot in tech. I think Slack was yep. like that. A bunch of tech companies are like that. At biotech, you don't really see that, actually. You don't see like a, a drug company and say, oh, man, we, we have, we're going to spin out. Some, maybe Wuxi. Maybe Wuxi's like that, actually. Um, uh, but it, I think millennium, millennium, it's not, it's not exactly the millennium story, but it's like, if you kind of squint and tilt your head, that's kind of the millennium story. Uh, but you're right. It's much more common in the, in the tech world than in the biotech world. I, I, actually, I think Wuxi is like that. I, I, I think, yeah, I think if, if ECL is essentially Wuxi, 
you know, ECI, the big opportunity for ECI, I think I told you this, is like just to build Wuxi in America. And uh, <laughs> seriously, and uh, for, for national security and a bunch of other reasons. And so I think, I think that, uh, yeah, that's your, that's your, that's your uh, tailwind or something. But, you know, so uh, seriously, and you, you can solve the labor arbitrage problem because they're tech enabled. You know, right, uh, right. And so in terms of like, you know, you, 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 you kind of started, you had started another company. How did you like balance your time? How did you reorientate your team? How did you like, you know, you're solving a different problem now with ECL, right. you're, solving, you're solving the problem of, you know, uh, increasing reproducibility, lowering barriers, uh, kind of what was the kind of just the, the organizational logistics and kind of that reorientation, you know, and how did you do that? Yeah. So I'll address the team question first, because that was actually that one was really easy because it was a huge relief to our team when we when we divided the company, because prior to that, I think everyone felt this great amount of like anxiety and pressure about like, what sh should I be like focused on the, the first, the first derivative of, you know, basically building the platform, building the ECL to make research go faster tomorrow, or should I be trying to push like research forward today? And so once we like drew that line very clearly, like everyone on this side is like building is like on the tool side and everyone on this side is like on the research side and is not focused on building the tools, just focused on pushing the research forward. That was actually very clarifying for people and very motivating because then they could just have one point of focus to worry about and didn't have to be in the situation where no matter what they were doing, they felt like they maybe should be doing the other thing. So how did, you, was, how, did you, how, did, how did you divide the people? Was it by straws or something? Like, hey, everybody picks a straw? And <laughs> it was actually, it was really clear. Like there were just some people on the team who were much more focused on, much more focused on and motivated by the therapeutic. And they very clearly like went with that company and then everyone else, like the vast majority of the workforce was much more motivated by, you know, the tool and the platform and the infrastructure. And so it was a pretty clear division. There were a couple of people who I think could have gone either way. And we basically just gave them a choice at that time. We were like, look, you kind of need to pick a side of the fence to sit on. Where do you want to be? And that made it, you know, they made their choice and we never had anyone. I've actually talked to a couple of those people recently. Uh, no one regrets the choice they made. So I, I think that that, uh, that ended up being all right. And the, in terms of at, Brian and my time, the reason why I think we've been able to make it work is just, you know, Emerald Therapeutics, was, you know, very much still in the, you know, the early days of, you know, of research and development. And so we have an incredible, the, the woman who runs research for Emerald Therapeutics is brilliant. She has a, her, like the rate at which her brain spins is like, you know, significantly faster than mine. I always say that Catherine has one of the highest RPM brains I've ever seen. And so she doesn't actually need that much from us on a day-to-day -day basis. Like the Emerald Therapeutics for, for me anyway, is like playing correspondence chess. Like I need to make several decisions like a month or like a few decisions a quarter. And those decisions I have to think about a lot and really focus on, but there's a small number of them. Whereas Emerald Cloud Lab is, you know, a thousand decisions a day. So it's like playing speed chess. So because the timescales are so different, it's been, palatable to to manage both really cool and then you know when you start when you kind of then sort of built getting ecl off the ground how did you define the problem set i think a lot of founders 
you know, when they get a company started or early, early days, you know, just trying to define like, what are we gonna really be the best at? And from my understanding, it's reproducibility, equipment access, reduce onboarding times, standardized data, and a few other things. But how did you go about, uh, were those problems obvious to you or did you have to iterate across, you know, several months or something? No, I think all those problems were obvious. I would say those problems are more the, those, like those solutions are more the output of the, the central like problem that we are trying to solve, which sounds much more pedantic, but I think it's very important, which is how do you create an instruction set for the lab such that there's nothing that you, nothing is off limits. Like there's nothing that you could do if you were standing in the lab yourself that our instruction set does not account for. So, you know, like this is one of the reasons why it we've had to be, you know, we've had to sort of like tear down and rebuild our system many times because eventually, you know, you get into the devils and the details you're like, oh, like our, you know, we or our cut, you know, when it was the early days, it was just us, but now it's our customers need to be able to do like this thing. We don't have like a, an instruction for doing that. So you can almost kind of think of it like an early, like a microprocessor that we needed a, an instruction set. You know, you don't just build like a function for addition and a function for subtraction and what have you. You build an instruction set that you can compile those, you know, higher order functionalities from. And that's what we were trying to do is what is sort of like the instruction set you need to drive a laboratory remotely. And then all the other things that you mentioned, the the reproducibility and the speed to start time and reducing like, the overhead capital barriers and all of these things um, are all things that that sort of fall out once you have that. But we didn't say we need to solve the reproducibility problem. How are we going to do that? We said we need to have an instruction set so that you can specify exactly what you want the lab to do from you know remotely from the from the jump, and then what are all the benefits you get from having that. Really cool, really interesting. And so, you know, from that basis of like a framing what you're working on, how long did it take for you guys to like get that first version of the product out? And during that process, like, what, who, who are you building it for? Like, well, maybe in, uh, maybe a, a wide set of people, or did you have someone in mind? Like, we're going to build this for like an individual scientist or an academic scientist, or uh, for the, at least that first product. Uh, or yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, the, the first product, it's a, when the first product like came out is sort of a, you know, we had like an internal, this internal tool and, you know, we've constantly been ever since, you know, the split, we've been iterating to make the UI easier to use and, you know, to make it like more intuitive and simpler for people to, to use and to drive. So like where, like, v1 really starts as kind of a hard line to draw but i think from the beginning you know we we set out to solve a problem for ourselves so early on we were really thinking about we were really thinking about startups and we envisioned that you know startups and maybe academics would always be our first market and then eventually once people had used this as you know maybe as graduate students or in like a startup company they had done and then had gone to a big company eventually through like a grassroots um, effort, we would get into, you know, big pharma and sort of larger enterprise customers. And it's, it hasn't exactly been the opposite, but it's almost been the opposite. The amount of interest and hunger for this, at least among some segments of the sort of larger pharma and biotech community have, they haven't, 
you know, out outpaced the startups, but they've at least kept pace with them, which I never would have expected when we when we originally, you know, sort of designed this and thought about what our go to market would look like. Interesting. And why do you think is that? Do you think it's because biopharma companies just have more data, more, more samples to process? Or is it just a like, you know, maybe, you know, is it a resource issue or is it a, uh, is it kind of, you know, sometimes startups need to do their own experiments just to raise venture capital and, and, and not seem like they're giving IP away. But maybe right. Is there, is there, and, and, and yeah, do you have any? They, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's different. One of the one of the interesting things is that even though the the product is is the same for all of our customers, everyone sort of like sees or focuses on a different point of the value chain. So, for example, for some of the for some of the earliest uh, big pharma's we worked with, some of them were really focused on the fact that. They, they described their work with their outsourcing partners as an existential crisis, that they there was so much science that was not happening within their walls anymore that, and they were effectively just, they even as scientists were effectively just like, you know, PMing, you know, scientists like thousands of miles away saying like, you know, do the thing that I would do if I was in the lab, but not really confident they could really understand the science well enough to do that. And so they saw... Emerald as a way to take back the control of the science without having to lose all the benefits of, you know, elasticity and like no overhead capital costs and scale and all these things that they had with their outsourcing, uh, outsourcing customers. For others, it was companies that really wanted to get into the data science and ML and AI worlds, but, you know, had tried and had just realized like, they spend 99% of their time munging data to try to put it into a form that those algorithms can actually work on. And even then, like, it's hard to get anything actionable out of it because it's so hard to compare like apples to apples when you're just, you know, mashing data sets together. And so for them, the fact that all the data that gets generated in the ECL comes out in this pristine form in a very like precise structured ontology that can instantly get fed into any of these different algorithms and you know not to go uh, too far afield here but we even have some groups in the computational biology and computer science world that are now trying to build like closed loops where they get results back from from emerald and then they have a, an algorithm that des designs the next set of experiments and then just feeds them right back into the system so there is some like very cool stuff um, starting to happen there. And then for the, for startups, I think that the, so that was, so for the big pharmas, like it's really, there's a wide diversity of sort of why they came to us early. And then for the, for the startups, I think early on, like our, whether or not we resonated with companies was just really directly tied to whether or not we had the instruments that they needed. I mean, that, you know, there's, this coverage piece, which we're almost at the end of, we're not quite there yet, but we're pretty close, is huge that, you know, if someone says, hey, I want to be able to, I need to be able to do these seven different experiments or basically have access to these seven different instruments. And we were like, cool, we have four of those. They're like, all right, great. We'll come back when you have the other three, because until I can have the complete set, I still need to rent and fit out lab space and buy CapEx and all of these things that 
just make the whole proposition like interesting but less valuable. Yep, I mean that's what makes kind of that's your moat, you know, like kind of onboarding all these devices and all these functions, and that takes a long time to and to get it all integrated. You know, it's for, you know, you might do look at chromatography, but if you can't do mass spec, it's like, oh, okay, cool, right, <laughs> right. So you can, or you know, you might be able to do uh, an Eliza or something, but then if you can't do, uh, you know, uh, PCR in the back end, so I, I think totally agree on that. Maybe we could shift gears and talk about you know examples of ECL. And, and, and I think uh, one customer that you, you know, uh, announced was going back to your alma mater, Carnegie yeah. Mellon, and it comes full circle, right? And he yes. said, okay, that was really, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's so awesome. You, you, you and Brian are going back to your alma mater and installing a huge uh, uh, site uh, for them uh, and, and doing a lot of work for them. And so maybe you want to talk about that and we can also discuss sure. other, other case studies of uh, where ECL has really, you know, helped, uh, you know, companies in drug development and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. So for Carnegie Mellon, we're building them. So most of the way, the primary way that people use the ECL is, you know, through what we call our global cloud facilities, where it's a shared laboratory that all of our customers from, you know, three person startups to single person like academic labs to giant biopharma companies can access from anywhere in the world. And it's sort of a shared resource that everyone has bandwidth on. But for large, uh, for large individual customers, we also have this idea of what we call an on-premise facility, where we will build and operate a cloud lab for an individual customer. And so that's what we're doing with Carnegie Mellon. We're building the world's first academic cloud lab that will be used by not just their you know, faculty for doing research, but also for teaching classes, for collaborations for startup companies that they're spinning out will have access to this facility. So it's really a, a tool for the entire university and not just for the biology and chemistry departments, but also for you know collaborations with robotics and, and computer science and computational biology. And one of the things that I think Carnegie Mellon has always done well and one of the things that I'm most proud of is just this ability to to really blend disciplines. And I think that this is going to be a sort of central resource that allows that to happen at an even faster timescale on the, on the sciences side. Really cool. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that you have more universities on the horizon, I'm, I'm pretty sure of. And, and, uh, and, 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 and maybe, do you have any like case studies or examples of, of existing customers in biotech and, and how that's been in terms of like, you know, uh, what you've enabled, you know, what automation enables. I think, I think a big, a big advantage is like if you can automate data generation, that's a prerequisite for like machine, be, machine learning being useful in biology. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's kind of like you know, in Citro and a bunch of these companies, you kind of need to build your own infrastructure to even take the have the benefits of ML. But do you have any kind of examples of of what ECL, what automation has enabled in maybe medicine? Yeah. So I mean, so some of the examples are very are very pedantic, which is just doing things like uh, companies. And we also have some people in the academic realm doing this. So you can better predict uh, like purification conditions for a given compound. So, you know, you feed in or generate data for, you know, different like classes of compounds, whether they be biologics or small molecules. And from that data set, you can learn, okay, if I have another molecule that kind of looks like this, what's the right 
column, what's the right gradient, what's the right buffer system. So you can start to do some really interesting things to your point on the like AI and ML side that are sort of like just next level abstractions on the system. We have, you know, so, so, but some of our customers are doing things that are much more pedantic where they're really just uh, like trans, like some of them, some of the bigger companies are just transferring methods that currently exist at, that they're currently running at, uh, at, you know, contract research organizations to the ECL and the fact that they're able to just sort of like run those things in the background and can modify them, you know, not by like having to spin up another project and, you know, like have, you know, like a half dozen conversations that they just like go into the, go into our software and it's like, okay, I'd actually like to see what this looks like if we use a different column or try a different gradient or, you know, run the, do a, a triple quad mass spec instead of, you know, some other method. So there's, so there's th those sort of like, you know, very useful, but pedantic examples. And then we have people who are using our, my, my background in graduate school was nucleic acid chemistry. So I'm particularly fond of companies that we have on the system that are using it for generating, you know, these novel nucleic acids or novel peptides where they're incorporating non-natural bases or non-natural amino acids into, into their oligomers. And then, you know, then QCing them and then testing them and sort of can build sort of like that full, that full life cycle for those molecules into like into uh, the software and the commands of the ECL. So we're trying to, and I'm, I'm trying to think of some other things like that we that we have, and I'm trying to tiptoe around confidentiality agreements that I've signed for some of this. But I mean, we also have things like, you know, we have uh, CPG companies like testing, you know, testing over the counter, like consumer products, like on the system. So it really does span the range from some of the coolest cutting edge startups that like doing things that are like new pharmaceutical modalities and things like that to like, you know, we've tested mouthwash on the system. So it's really, it really like runs the, runs the full like gamut. But I think that all of that is interesting because all of that is in the spirit of accelerating science, which I'm very passionate about. Absolutely. I mean, if you can kind of empower more creative people, even beyond drug development, and I think there's a big opportunity in like consumer products and, and industrial products to kind of use these tools to, you know, create like, you know, we're an investor called Revela. They're making like Rogaine 2.0. And, mm. and so it's, yeah. really, it's, actually, it's actually really cool. Evan Zell is really good. And so uh, maybe how do you think about it? And, and to, you have these customers, you built out this platform. How do you think about scaling that platform? And, 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 and has that interplay with the business model? You know, there's opportunities for like a marketplace potentially. Yes. I don't know if there, there might be network effects, but maybe you can touch upon that and how, how you think about ECL over the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the, the highest sort of order bit to think about this is in terms of levels of abstraction. So if you think about other technology industries that have made rapid progress over like the last, you know, you know, half a half a century, the thing that they have in common is that they've built layers of abstraction. So if you think about like the earliest like programming languages, like first you're writing machine code and then you have something like C where you're still like specifying addresses in memory and giving the microprocessor like specific instructions, but it's a little bit more than machine code. And, now you have programming languages where there's not even like, you, there's no even like concept of being connected to like a physical processor at the end of the day. 
And that abstraction enables you to do increasingly powerful things on the system because like the details kind of, you can get glossed over. And this is, I, I this is admittedly hyperbolic, but up until recently, like whether or not something went into clinical trials could come down to, did I pipette into that well yet or not? And so what we're doing right now, like sort of like the V1 of the ECL is just the first layer of abstraction between the world of bits and the world of atoms that you can fully specify in software what you want to have happen in the lab. But that's just the first layer. There are many, many more layers that can be built on top of that. We certainly have things that we are you know, currently working on toward that and things that we hope other people will build on for that. And you mentioned this idea of a marketplace, which I love. So if you're an individual scientist and you like design a new assay or generate a particularly valuable data set that you could give, you could basically uh, sort of containerize that and have that as an application on the ECL that you can, that you can monetize that, you know, other people who are interested in that data or interested in that experiment or, you know, that assay can actually, you know, use, you know, get access to that application on the ECL and then use that allows, again, it's in the spirit of moving science forward faster. You know, we always like the, the sort of canonical thing that everyone says about science is that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, which is certainly true. But really, if we want to move forward the fastest, we need to just stand on each other's shoulders. So the more that we can make data accessible and shareable and sort of quantifiable in this system through, you know, applications or a marketplace, so there, there are many different ways that we're thinking about doing this you can actually share, you know, not just data, but also methods. And so ways of tying methods to data back to methods that you can then modify and generate novel data sets off that first one. I think that where all this is going is, gets very exciting, especially as we're able to think more and more about these things conceptually and abstractly and not having to worry about the implementation details in the lab. Absolutely, and then maybe to build on top of that, I don't know how much you want to disclose, I don't want to, I'll let you just uh, talk about it, but like in terms of what that enables for an individual uh, practitioner of say services and you know, what I'll say is like, uh, uh, you know, 20 years ago in biotech, there's been this massive more move towards virtualization. What that mm -hmm. means, that I'm a biotech company, when I start off, instead of buying all this lab space, I'm going to use CRL, Charles River as a CRO. Yep. And let, let them do the work, and then they do the work, and then maybe if, you start, if science plays out, then I'll start the company and finance it, and then get started. Uh, and ECL is kind of the, maybe the final form of that 20-year you know, trend. Uh, and, and, and on the backdrop of that, you know, all the CROs are consolidating. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, something like, like five, I think the CRO market, market like the top five CROs own like 70% of the market. Yeah, the whole, it's ridiculous. The, it's the whole middle market, the whole, you know, boutique med chemist, yep. you know, he, he, he's out of business, you know. And so how do you think about, uh, you know, ECL empowering those individuals uh, to then, you know, uh, help drug companies and other types of companies? Yeah. So I, I think that, I think you can kind of, this is, again, overly simplistic, but you can kind of think of the CRO space as sort of like two, as like a tale of two cities, right? You have the companies that really are, all CROs are 
um, a combination of consultancy and experimentation. And the more the, you have ones that are really heavy on the consultancy side or what you're paying them for is their expertise. And I think those people, we, you know, like the, you know, like the, the brilliant med chemists or the brilliant, you know, people who are like, you know, KOLs in, uh, you know, DMPK assays or things like that, where they just, they are going to know more than any individual customer and that's their value add. I think we can really empower those people because let's face it, like relative to like a consultancy, uh, running a lab is a relatively low margin business. And most of those people ran labs because they had to, not because they wanted to. So if they can basically become meta CROs where they have the relationships with their customers and are designing the assays and then using ECL as the back ends to generate the data that their customers need. To me, that's like wins all around. The place where it gets a little trickier to your early comments about Wuxi are with the CROs that are effectively just labor arbitrage plays. And if we can mitigate the, the value of that by using, you know, automation and, you know, 21st century, you know, practices in manufacturing and how to like do industrial engineering, which all of which we are doing and is sort of a secret passion of maybe not so secret passion of mine, that I think that is sort of if we can move the CRO market more toward this meta level of like consultancy where you have world experts who are helping advise you and, you know, help you direct your experiments as a company, whether you're a giant biopharma or a tiny startup, that is, you know, to everyone's benefit. Absolutely. I think it would, you spent 10 years ECL building out all this really uh, compelling infrastructure. And I think in the next 10 years, it's growing that top business, but also building a whole new business model of like, you know, like a Shopify for drug development. <laughs> uh, and seriously. And I so like I that. Think, That's very catchy. <laughs> and so I, I think, you I think you know, you have to go do it, but I, I, you just look at the market dynamics. The, the, the market's, the timing's kind of right for that. And not only with the CRO market, but also with, uh, there's a big need for onshoring biomanufacturing uh, bio to the U.S. due to COVID. And so uh, on that point, and so, you know, a lot of your capabilities for ECL right now are focused on, you know, facts, mass spec, maybe things that are more involved in, uh, you know, maybe small molecules. I mean, I don't want to misframe it, but how do you think about expanding your menu of products? And maybe one day ECL can help companies with antibody discovery, uh, automating gene therapy manufacturing, a whole host of other functions, uh, and going up the value chain, so to speak, towards from, from kind of... Uh, general experiments into more and more customized experiments. Is that part of the purview or do you want to kind of just monopolize kind of the more general experiments? I mean, the getting, making it so that you can get access to any, any instrument that you want is really like our, our first sort of the, is the highest order bit for us right now. So the idea that, you know, so for example, you know, there are lots of different, you know, we don't have, there's no experiment like kinase assay on the ECL because there, you know, there are lots of different ways to run a kinase assay. And our job, as we see it, is to give you access to, you know, the plate readers or the incubators or whatever you need to design the assay exactly how you want to run it, not to have this sort of formulaic view of like, here's how, like, if you want to run a kinase assay, you do it this way on the ECL. Um, having said that, I think that 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 level of sort of having higher order functionality is something that 
you know, we may get interested in, we may do some of that in the future. Some of that may be more of this like app store that we talked about earlier. I think that we do have an interest in, you know, right now our goal is sort of first order bit is getting everything that spans the range from cell and molecular biology through synthetic and analytical chemistry so that there shouldn't be anything in that uh, along that spectrum that you could do in a traditional lab that you can't do in the ECL. From there, we've already sort of been getting pushed a little bit by some of our customers to move more toward the inorganic chemistry and material science world. And that's that's actually relatively low hanging fruit for us just because the, you know, all the instruments are about the same size and all of our automation, you know, tricks and know-how and industrial engineering practices sort of feed very easily into that. But I think that there are, you know, this idea of allowing scientists to think less about like the, the implementation details in the lab and more about their high level objectives is really important. And that's certainly the way that we would like to see this going, especially as you're seeing this like explosion in the number of different pharmaceutical modalities that companies are pursuing. I think that's really the, the direction that all of this is moving. I totally agree. I think there's a, I think you have a lot of opportunities ahead of you. And so I just trying to figure out where the growth is and, and, and where you can kind of be first in class. Uh, so it's going to be, you know, it's going to be really, I think that the university path is going to be really exciting and that could be a, a, a good entry point towards, uh, you know, expanding to a lot of other uh, types of uh, functions and whatnot. But maybe to kind of wrap it up and tie it all together, um, you know, any final thoughts? And especially we have a lot of founders here, or potential yeah. founders. You know, we've touched upon things around finding product market fit, a little about team building. But do you have any kind of like lessons you've learned over the last decade? Maybe, you know, topics are like how to build a board, how to manage a board how to set a culture, but any kind of uh, specific things you, you think are worth sharing? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I have in, I've developed over the last 10 or 11 years, uh, plenty of scar tissue around all of those things. And so I get, and but just in general, like I'm, I'm very loathe to like give advice. I feel like advice is just kind of like uh, codified scar tissue. So whenever I talk to people, so maybe this is like a piece of advice, like, whether you're talking to like an advisor or a board member or, you know, a, a, anyone within your network and you get advice, my like default is always to ask like, what's the story that led you to that piece of advice? Because we're scientists, right? Like, give me the raw data. I'll do my own analysis. But what I really want is the raw data. I want the stories that led you to say like, you should never take money from this kind of investor because the circumstances that led you to that conclusion may be different from the ones that uh, may be different from the ones that I'm in. And so I need to know like why you're saying that, not just like that that's the conclusion you came to. So my, my advice in general is always like get the stories because the stories are invaluable. The advice that comes from those stories, you know, you can sort of take or leave, but I think getting those those like getting that raw data, getting the stories from people who have been through it, either as investors or entrepreneurs or really anything. That's really where the value lies. That's pretty powerful. Really understand the stories of the advice you get. That's pretty, uh, 
That's actually pretty useful. <laughs> uh, Seriously, that's actually very useful. I'm going to start using that, actually. Because uh, I get a lot of advice, too. As an investor, I'm always worried about, like, some other investor telling me something, and I'm like, oh, and then I go to sleep, and then I, they, they bias me. So I'm always, lo- so I'm always worried about biasing. Biases. Well, it's, it's, always, it's always funny. Like, sometimes that advice is, like, it's an N of one, right? Like, I had this really... You know, I, I, I just take like a trivial example, like, you know, we hired someone from uh, from UCSF and they were a complete like diva and basket case. So you sh- so your conclusion from that might be like, don't hire anyone from UCSF. It's like that's not the right conclusion from that. It's like you need to vet for like those personalities. That, so sometimes people have like valuable data, but the wrong conclusion. And so that's why I feel like just getting the getting the story that like. And sometimes it's, you know, it's uh, many, many stories that led them to that. And sometimes it's like an N of one. So I think that all of those are, are useful to you as you sort of try to, like, synthesize that for your own company or project or team. Awesome. Well, man, I had a great time talking. And we should, uh, you should let me hit me up when you're in Berkeley. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I don't go to Palo Alto that often. <laughs> the, the, seriously, the joke is, like, SF is domestic travel. And then... Palo Alto is like international travel for me. So uh, <laughs> uh, seriously, I love Berkeley. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, that, me, that's still that's that's pretty that's still pretty progressive. I feel like there are plenty of people who consider like if you have to cross a bridge, like that's international travel. I'm kind of like uh, the people who live in Manhattan. You know, like they, they still leave Manhattan for life. So I'm that's kind of like me in Berkeley. I just have a sweet life here. And so I, if you hit me, we go to cheese, we go to cheese board or something uh, when you're near town. But uh, honestly, Sounds everybody, great. everybody in the audience, if you're a scientist, if you're running a company, and I would really recommend you uh, check out Emerald Cloud Lab. Um, and, if, and I'm sure they have uh, a particular set of workflows that can really help you move faster. And so uh, be sure to check out ECL. And I, I, I know for a fact there's going to be a lot more announcements over the next few years. And so uh, really inspiring work to not only build a great company, but like, like go through the ups and downs of it. And, and like and like you know find product market fit and like you're, you're still you're still living the dream you know <laughs> you know seriously you're still living the dream of like of you what you and Brian set out to do 10 15 years ago so like keep on living the dream and uh, I think we seriously and we all look forward to you know ECL next 10 years like what, what more you build but uh, DJ I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon my pleasure always great talking with you thanks everyone Thank you, everyone. Well, have a great day, everyone. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.